Alrighty. Well, it is great to be here. I feel like I'm a million miles away from everybody up here, so I may not stay up here very long. <clears throat> when uh, Pastor Phil, at the beginning, asked all of you to come forward, I was sitting there thinking, this is the first church I've ever been in where the invitation was given at the beginning of the service. <clears throat> so uh, um, it is great to be with you. Um, uh, I'm very grateful, very grateful, not just for the privilege of being here, but there's a special reason. I was, uh, um, I'm ministering over at the Cornerstone Seminary, uh, teaching there, and um, I get to sit and minister in the context of the fruit of the ministry of this church. There are people, there are ministries, there are churches all over this area that have been impacted by your pastor and by Valley Bible Church. And I get to come here, you know, in recent years and experience much of the fruit of that ministry. So I was thrilled to be able to, to get to meet uh, Pastor Phil because I knew of him by reputation before I met him. And uh, a dear brother, a man whom God gave the vision to look beyond what was on the outward surface to see what God can do. There is something very Christ-like about that. And I just rarely see it, and so it's just a real honor for me to be here and uh, just to, to try to bring some of the blessing back, if I can. So uh, I have, in the three hours or so that I have with you tonight, <clears throat> um, it's going to be a little difficult to cover everything. Um, but I want to preach to you tonight about something that uh, is, if I had a favorite doctrine, this would probably be it. And that would be the doctrine of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. It's not my favorite because others aren't important. Others are very, very important. But you know, when it comes right down to it, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus Christ or what you believe about salvation if they're based upon a Bible that isn't true. So really, there's th this, this doctrine that we're going to be talking about tonight is foundational to everything else we believe. If the Bible is not the Word of God, if the Bible is not the inerrant Word of God, then it really doesn't matter if you're orthodox about everything else. On the other hand, if the Bible is the Word of God, and the doctrine that we believe is based upon the Bible as the Word of God, then we can affirm and we can preach and we can proclaim the gospel with all the confidence in the world, knowing that it is precisely and unequivocally the truth of God. And so what I want to do tonight in the brief time that I have with you is just encourage you with that. I know that that has been <clears throat> a doctrinal foundation that this church has stood on in 40 years of its existence. So I wanna, what I wanna do is not only affirm that, but even more to give you a little bit of a basis for that particular doctrine to show you that this is not something that we just make up. So I wanna talk to you tonight about the inerrancy of scripture. A Couple introductory comments very quickly. I'm not gonna speak tonight about the inspiration of scripture per se, only because we don't have enough time to do both. I'm going to assume 
inspiration. We're gonna be looking more narrowly at the question of the inerrancy of scripture, and there's two reasons why I wanna do that. Um, both of them are <clears throat> related to currents that have been infecting the professing evangelical church in the last 50 years or so. The first of them is a current that says that the Bible is inspired and even that the Bible is infallible, but it's not inerrant. Uh, a seminary in this state, not too far from the seminary I went to, was at the foremost of advocating this particular view, Fuller Theological Seminary down in Pasadena, California. And they had this view that the Bible was inerrant or infallible when it came to matters of faith and morals, but not so when it was talking about matters of history and science, or things that, um, you know, that, that were historical or scientific facts of Scripture. And the, the very simple answer I would give to that is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 12. If I have spoken to you regarding earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I speak to you regarding heavenly things? The point is that if the Bible cannot be trusted on areas that can be empirically verified, things like history and science, why would we ever trust it? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through me. If I can't be trusted on something I can prove, why would I ever trust it on something I can't prove? So this, and we'll talk a little bit more about the fallacy of this division, but I'm concerned about, and by the way, if you want to really get into this, and I'm going to jump into a lot of stuff here, um, there, was a, there was a council of scholars about, in the late 1970s, if you really want to dig into this, they did an excellent, excellent job of dealing with this issue of biblical inerrancy. It's called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and uh, there's a number of books, a number of resources that were produced, their statement on inerrancy is absolutely stellar. And like I say, I wish I could go more into that. I would just encourage you, you can find some material on that online, I'm sure. Uh, but I would point you to that for a further exposition of what we're gonna talk about just scratching the surface tonight. Internet, it's called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. It met in the late 1970s and even into the early to mid-1980s. Uh, Harold and Zell's book, The Battle for the Bible, was one of the key books in actually um, prodding for it. So um, they've produced a number of books that are just outstanding. So, but there's a second thing <clears throat> that has bothered me in more recent years. And that is, oh, thank you very much. Um, that is that there are those who, um, who claim to affirm inerrancy, but their position actually denies it. One of my own doctoral professors in my program at Westminster Seminary uh, came out with a book in the mid, around 2005 called Inspiration and Incarnation, in which he, he claims to believe in inerrancy, but then turns around and says that Genesis is myth, and that the Bible is full of discrepancies that we have to take into consideration when we define the doctrine of Scripture. Well, that's nothing more than regurgitated liberalism. And here's a case where you affirm inerrancy, but then your definition of it is completely devoid of anything that's meaningful. 
So what I want to do tonight, very simply, is begin by giving you a definition of inerrancy. This is what we mean when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, I quote here Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who actually was one of the key factors in the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. He says this, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the Scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted, all these are important, by the way, and properly interpreted means that inerrancy attaches to Scripture, not to my opinion or how I use the Scripture. Presupposes here a proper handling of the Word of God. So when Scripture in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true, and everything they teach, whether that teaching has to do with doctrine, history, science, geography, geology, and these days I would add ethics, and the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, we don't have the liberty to mess with that. It doesn't matter whether you're a judge or the current president of the United States. The Bible is still the truth when it speaks to matters of ethics. It has never, it has always been that. In other words, when we, when we wanna, if we wanna narrow down the issue of inerrancy to one word, very simply it would be this, truthfulness. Truthfulness. Positively, this means that the Bible is entirely true. Negatively, it means that the Bible is never false. That's about the simplest definition I can come up with for the issue of inerrancy. So tonight, I want to talk about how do we know? How do we know that the Bible is inerrant? I want to give you three reasons, and I'll just go ahead and tell you ahead of time, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the third one. So the first two, in some ways, are an introduction to the third one. The first reason why the Bible is inerrant is basically an argument from theology. And that is this, very simply, inspiration demands it. This goes back to a verse that we haven't referenced yet, but is very important, two verses actually, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that tells us that all Scripture, whether you're dealing with Scripture collectively as a whole or each individual Scripture, all Scripture is what? God-breathed. So what you say about the Bible, you say about the author of the Bible. Because the Bible has its very root, its very source in God himself. And of course, because it is God-breathed, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There's an awful lot in that verse that we could just spend all night preaching on. Second Peter chapter 1 indicates that even though there were human authors of Scripture, that did not in any way compromise the inerrancy of Scripture because holy men of God spoke as they were moved or as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So just like Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man, with neither nature compromising the other one, because the Holy Spirit superintended, right? Yes. Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, the, uh, Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and because of that, that which is going to be born of you will be holy. Same thing with Scripture. It has, if you can par pardon the analogy a little bit, it has a divine nature and a human nature. And the humanity of Scripture does in no way compromise the deity of Scripture, if you will, or the divinity of Scripture, because 
holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. The same Holy Spirit that protected sinfulness from coming into Jesus, protected error from coming into the Word of God. It's theology. And of course, you have a little uh, syllogism that's in your notes there. We know that God is truth. Romans 3, 4 tells us, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. We know that the Bible is the word of God, therefore the scriptures themselves are truth. John 17, 17, which should settle the question for inerrancy for all of us, and it isn't the only passage that teaches this, but we'll go ahead and cite it at this point. John 17, 17, when Jesus prays, he says, sanctify them. He prays for us, by the way. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And so if, Jesus, if the Bible is not inerrant, if the Bible is wrong, then it tells us something about the author. It tells us either, number one, that he was uh, unaware that certain things that he included in Scripture were, would later be found out to be untrue, which means he's less than omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Or maybe God was aware that something was untrue but just didn't have the ability to keep it from creeping into Scripture anyway. That would deny his omnipotence. Or even worse, if I know something to be false and I communicate it to you as truth anyway, what does that make me? A liar. And you have several references explicitly telling us in the New Testament that God cannot lie. It's constitutionally impossible for God to lie. So the inspiration of Scripture demands it. It is moronic in the Romans' one sense of that word. It is moronic to speak of the Bible as the Word of God if you are not including in that inerrancy. It cannot be the Word of God if it isn't inerrant. But the second point I want to make tonight is that inerrancy goes beyond merely a theological deduction from the fact that the Bible is God's word. There are a number of texts that explicitly claim inerrancy for the Bible. And again, this is in the fellowship with all the ones that we could cite that talk about the inspiration of scripture generally. I wanna narrow in on a few <clears throat> that talk about the inerrancy of scripture specifically. I wanna to look tonight, you have a couple of them, several of them listed in your notes, but I wanna focus in on one Old Testament passage and one New Testament one. For our purposes. Go with me, if you will, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 in the Old Testament, which is a powerful, powerful passage. I'm sure that in the, the legacy that this church has, uh, that you have at one point or another looked at this psalm because this is a tremendous psalm on what we would call revelation. General revelation through creation in the first six verses and then it transitions to special revelation in verses 7 through 12 of this psalm. In fact, this is such a pivotal psalm that I believe we have an inspired commentary on this psalm elsewhere in the Bible. Any guesses? Psalm 119 has the same fluidity of expressions when it comes to describing the Word of God. It's a little bit longer. Good thing we didn't go there tonight. We'd be here all night. 176 verses, all but four of them mentioned the word of God. But the kernel, the root 
of what Psalm 119 develops sometime afterwards is found right here in Psalm 19. And, and I want you to notice something here. You have, you have six statements in verses 7 through 9, and each statement has three components. You have a description or title, if you will, for Scripture. Then you have an adjective, and then you have a result or what Scripture does. So, for example, if you look at verse 7 with me, it says, the law of the Lord, that would be the title, is perfect, that would be the description. And what does it do? It restores the soul. So let me just read these three verses to you and just let these words sink in as we're, as we're looking at them. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That's six different ways of saying the same, essentially the same thing. Now let me lift out for you just the words that David here uses to describe Scripture. Every one of them has something in common. Let me just pick out the words again. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect. End of verse seven, it's sure, which means it's a foundation that you can build your life upon that will never break apart. Verse eight, it's right. The end of verse eight, it's pure. Verse nine, clean. And the end of verse nine, true. Every single one of those adjectives makes a claim for the truthfulness of scripture in six different ways in three verses. The Bible teaches its own inerrancy. That's for the Old Testament. Let me take you to a New Testament passage. And I picked this one specifically because we're gonna come back to it a little bit later. But Luke chapter one. <clears throat> Luke chapter one, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is the first of a two-volume work that sets forth the history of the early church. And actually, Luke, the first part of Acts links us back to the, first, to, to the Gospel of Luke, actually to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So the prologue that you see that opens up Luke's Gospel actually serves as a prologue for both books in many ways. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Even Paul even if you think Paul wrote Hebrews. But we'll give that honor to Barnabas. But anyway, even, you know, you know we tend to think because Paul wrote 13 books and Luke only wrote two that Paul wrote more. But if you add up words and chapters and everything else, Luke wrote more. It's quite a claim. Now with that in mind, let's look at Luke as one of those guys that actually tells us as, you open, as he opens his gospel why he wrote. I love it when Biblical authors do this. It saves me a lot of homework to try to figure out why he wrote when he t comes right out and tells us why he wrote. Look at verse 1. And there, again, this is a, this is a passage that uh, preaches all on its own anyway, but I, I just want to pick up on a few things. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us. It's another way of saying, Luke's saying here, that there are a lot of other written documents already by the time that Luke writes his gospel 
sometime around 25 years after the events of Jesus' life and ministry, 25 to 30 years. There's already written accounts, just as they were, verse 2, handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, that word is very important, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, Luke is not just interviewing people willy-nilly, he's actually interviewing people, as he puts his gospel together, under inspiration. He's interviewing people who are actually eyewitnesses of the events that Luke himself didn't even eyewitness. Remember, these are all events that took place up to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. <clears throat> so Luke, uh, Luke actually interviews people who are eyewitnesses of these things. And I'll the kicker comes in verses 3 and 4. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Why? Verse 4, and look at this, so that you might know what? The exact truth about the things that you have been taught. The exact truth, not just the vague truth that gets it right half the time and forget about the other half. That you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been instructed in. And of course, we've already looked at Jesus' own prayer in John 17, 17, where he explicitly says, your word is truth. So when we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're talking about something that is more than just an assumption we make because the Bible is God's word. It's also something that the Bible itself clearly teaches. And we just looked at a few references that we could spend all night on, unpacking what those verses have to say. But it's one thing for the Bible to make a claim like that. There's a third reason. Why? A lot of people, anyone could claim that their Bible, or their book, rather, is a holy book, even an inspired book, even an inerrant book. But there's a third reason. Not only does inspiration demand it, not only does the Bible teach it, but number three, we believe in inerrancy because the evidence proves it. The evidence proves it. And I believe that one of the key functions or key roles of what we call apologetics is not so much to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ, although it can have that function secondarily, but apologetics are primarily given to strengthen the faith of those who are believers. The Gospel of John 20, 30, 31, many other signs Jesus did which are not recorded in this book, but these are written in order that what? You might be believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so what I find, and this is where I want to spend whatever time I have left here tonight building you up, my brothers and sisters, because we are not whistling in the dark or being theologically blind when we talk about the Bible being inerrant. The evidence for the inerrancy of Scripture bleeds from the very pages of Scripture. Evidence that is absolutely amazing. And I want to I share this with you along three lines of evidence. Number one, and these go in order from what I would see as the least significant to the most significant, uh, but number one, the Bible is scientifically 
accurate. The Bible is scientifically accurate. And of course, that's something we need to remember these days in this whole create in the whole discussion about creation and evolution. And that's another one of my hobby horses. Um, but again, the very first verse in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. End of discussion. You know, what, what further need is there? And you know what? In fact, Psalm 14 says, the moron has said in his heart there is no God. Well, maybe, yeah, the, the, the word Nabal there is a fool, but it's a moral, it has the idea of a moral moron. It's not, it's not some guy who's a couple fries short of a Happy Meal. This is someone who is maliciously a fool. Even Romans 1, I love Romans 1. Because Romans 1 talks about the fact that the, the, the uh, God is entirely visible. He is entirely known through his creation. But then he talks about the fact that their foolish minds have become darkened and professing themselves to be wise, they became morons. And the Greek word there is morano. And it's a verb, which means they're actively morons. <laughs> You know, the whole issue with evolution, you know, if you take nobody times nothing equals everything, that's the equation of a moron. I'm sorry. But we're not even going to get into that because the whole issue of origins really actually belongs in a discussion of history, not science anyway. But what I do want to tell you is that while the Bible is not intended to be a science book, when the Bible touches on issues that are scientific, it teaches the truth. It teaches the absolute truth. And what I find amazing, I'm just gonna give you a couple of illustrations. What I find amazing about these is that the biblical writers mention these kind of offhandedly in the interest of making a bigger point. Isaiah 40, verse 22, tells us that God sits upon the circle of the earth. The earth was round long before Columbus discovered it, or even Aristotle discovered it. You know, and I, but even, even more than that passage in Isaiah, I love the one in Job, I think it's 26, I have it in your notes there, 26, that says, 26, seven, that God hangs the earth upon nothing. Now this is Job writing. Now, we don't know whether Job wrote the book that bears his name. I think he did. But if Job was the author of that book, and if the common assumption is that Job lived about or even before the time of Abraham, we have a date 1,300 years earlier or more earlier than even the Isaiah reference. We're talking a book about 2000 BC, and he's already talking about gravity. This is at a time when people, you know, had this idea of the earth being on the back of a big turtle or being held up by a big atlas dude. They don't ask the next question. What's the turtle standing on? But long before Isaac Newton, remember him? He's Fig's older brother. Long before Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravity, the Bible was talking about it. One of my favorite ones is in Genesis 15. When God takes Abraham, this is one of the occurrences of the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. 
third one actually of five that you have that are given during Abraham's own lifetime. And he takes Abraham, he sets him on a mountain in Genesis 15 and verse five and says, I want you to count the stars. Abraham said, can't do it. Canon's revised paraphrase. So God said, even so will your descendants be. The stars are innumerable. But do you know that for thousands of years after God made that statement to Abraham, that scientists were coming up with the number of stars? I think, uh, I forget which one had which number, but Ptolemy was one of them. About two centuries before Jesus, about 1800 years after Abraham, said there were 1,022 stars. Another guy, who was about three centuries later, said there were 1,026 stars. Now, I have no idea how they came up with those numbers. Maybe they're sitting on top of a mountain. One, two, three, four, five, six. Counted them up 100 times, took the average, and came up with 1,022. I don't know. But it wasn't until Galileo took a little piece of glass and held it up against the sky and said, holy cow, we can't number all these. And if people just read their Bibles, you would have known that to be the case. Now the issue for me is that in Genesis 15, the big point wasn't, you can't number the stars. The big point was, I'm gonna make of you a great nation. The big point in Isaiah chapter 40 wasn't that the earth is round. The big point in Isaiah 40 was God created it. And yet the Bible makes, throws these little statements in there almost as an aside what someone has called the watermarks of scripture. The little, you know how you hold up a piece of paper sometimes and you can see by the watermark that it's the real thing. And that's, this is one of the examples of it. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Number two, the Bible is historically accurate. This one is an interesting argument because it's often in this area Oh, I, I gotta give you one quote I forgot to say. Uh, science is always changing, by the way. If, you're, if you try to build what you believe based on what science says, you're gonna be worse than the boat driven and tossed with the wind. Because science is constantly changing. You know? Global warming. 30 years ago, they were warning about another ice age. And that's probably gonna be what the warning's gonna be in another 15 years after we've bankrupted ourselves, getting ready for the global warming. But in 18, this is, the, this is what I wanted to bring up. 1861, the French Academy of Science published a list of 51 facts that contradicted a statement in scripture. 100 years later, by 100 years later, not any known scientist held to any one of those 51 facts. The Bible was vindicated in every single one of them. Don't, don't allow yourself to get sucked into whatever science says it has to be the truth. Or more accurately, whatever scientism says it has to be the truth. But number two, the Bible is historically accurate. Here is where most charges of a contradiction are leveled against scripture. And of course the assumption is that if the Bible says one thing and the secular historical record says something else, obviously the Bible has to be wrong. Nobody even gives any credence to the idea that maybe the secular guys got it wrong. But even more to the point, too often a contradiction is too quickly assumed. Let me give you two statements. 
Uh, Grover Cleveland was one of our presidents. Grover Cleveland was president before Benjamin Harrison. Grover Cleveland was president after Benjamin Harrison. Is that a contradiction? How many of you think it's a contradiction? Now nah, you guys are too smart. How many, how, many, how many of you didn't raise your hand because you knew if I brought it, if it was a contradiction, I would never bring it up? Okay, that's... Uh, Actually, but, but, but if you didn't have any idea of the context of what we're talking about tonight, and I just threw those two statements at you, you would, many people would immediately assume that I've just contradicted myself. But Grover Cleveland is the only president we've had who served two terms non-consecutively. He was elected president in 1884, was defeated in 1888 by Benjamin Harrison. Grover Cleveland ran against him again in 1892 and became president again. So Benjamin Harrison was both Cleveland's successor and predecessor. It's never been repeated in American history. Now that's, that's history that's barely over 100 years old. And yet we think that we have all the knowledge necessary to assume that because something doesn't match up with what we know to be established in the secular record that the Bible must therefore be false? Let me give you three examples, four examples, of where the Bible has shown itself to be true historically. Start with Moses. Many of you perhaps are familiar, and this dinosaur refuses to die, but you still see it, J-E-D-P, that whole malarkey about the four documents that made up the, the book of Moses, the books of Moses. And you, you know, it's, it's, it's a theory that has long since been discredited, but, but continues to force itself on the pages of just about any commentary you'll buy in any of those five books in the Old Testament. It is, it's just, <clears throat> anyway, that's another. I teach biblical introduction at our seminary, and there are certain things that are pet peeves of mine, and that one's one of them. But you know that one of the key reasons why people espouse that view to begin with? Everybody knows Moses didn't know how to write because writing wasn't invented when Moses was alive. That was the reigning view in the mid to the late 1800s until they, archaeology discovered in the mid-1900s that hieroglyphics predated Moses by a thousand years. In fact, they discovered libraries in Egypt that go back to Abraham's time. So we got God one, secularist zero. Move ahead to a guy by the name of Darius. Uh, actually, we could even bring in Belshazzar. Both of these are kings that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. Uh, and neither one of them were known in secular history. In fact, um, Critics particularly took, Belshazzar was the king who saw the handwriting on the wall. Remember that? And Daniel was, was brought in before him, and the king uh, asked Daniel for an interpretation of, the, of, of what he had just seen. And I've often, you know, earlier on wondered about this, because remember the king promises that Daniel would be given position number three in the kingdom if he answered the question correctly? But Daniel had been position number two, so what's Daniel going to do here? Settle for a demotion? I'll come back to that in a second. But, uh, but people said, this cannot be true historically. 
because the only king we know about, the king who was king at the time that, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, Babylon fell to the Greek, uh, uh, Medo-Persians was a guy by the name of Nabonidus. And we don't have any record of Belshazzar anywhere. So what happens is the Bible doesn't name the guy that we know was the king, and he names the guy that we know wasn't the king. So the argument went. Until, in the middle of the 20th century again, they discovered a bunch of archaeological material that tells us that Belshazzar, who was actually the son of Nabonidus, and Nabonidus were co-regents. But Nabonidus hated ruling. So he was out wandering all over the empire all the time and left his son in charge. Which, by the way, is why Belshazzar couldn't offer Daniel number two. Because that's what he were. He could only offer Daniel the highest position that was under him, and that was number three. So, two, zip. We've already looked at the opening of Luke's gospel and the, and the explicit claim that Luke makes to inerrancy. But what's amazing is Luke, more than any other biblical writer, especially in the New Testament, goes to great pains to situate his writings in the context of the first century Roman Empire. Luke names provinces. He's the only biblical author who even goes so much as to name an emperor. Uh, you get, Luke gets officials of cities right. He calls the guys in Thessalonica polytarchs, but in other places it's asiarchs. And you know, you get all these different weirdo names. You're like, what devotional value is there in knowing that there were polytarchs in Thessalonica? You read this kind of stuff and wonder, why is all that in there? Watermarks. Watermarks again. And Luke moves fluidly back and forth between these titles and never gets one of them wrong. Late 1800s, a guy by the name of William Ramsey, who was an Oxford-trained atheist, decided to set out to prove that the Bible was historically full of holes, inaccurate, wrong. And he made the mistake of choosing Luke as his primary basis of investigation. Long story short, after a course of about 10 years, William Ramsey came to faith in Christ. Because he kept finding evidence after evidence after evidence that Luke got all of his history right. Again, consistent with his claim. So we've got Moses, Belshazzar in the Old, and I could give you dozens. I'm just picking a few of my favorites. You got Luke in the New Testament. I want to end with my favorite one on the history part of it. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have 15 separate occurrences, references between the four Gospels, the book of Acts, and 1 Corinthians that tell us that Jesus Christ appeared either to individuals, groups of individuals, or in one case, in 1 Corinthians 15, a group of 500 people. In fact, Paul goes on to say, if you don't believe me, check with them, because most of them are still alive. Amazing. In fact, this is history that was predicted before it happened. In fact, it was, Jesus was so clear about the fact that he would rise from the dead 
that before it even happened, you had these religious leaders that were going to Pilate and asking to seal the tomb because they knew what Jesus had claimed. And of course, the resurrection was central to the preaching of the early believers. Now, let me, let me ask you something. If you're going to start a false religion and put resurrection at the basis of it, you want to have the resurrection happening 3,000 years ago in Timbuktu, where nobody could prove you wrong, right? No, there's no way you could be proven wrong. But where does God have the resurrection preached first? Acts 1.8, you should be witnesses, witnesses uh, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where it happened, when it happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most substantiated facts of human history. There is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar ever existed, historically speaking. Now the reason I bring up the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to ask you this question very simply. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ a matter of faith or is it a matter of history? The answer is yes. Remember way back when we introduced, we talked about people who drive a wedge between the Bible being inerrant or infallible in matters of faith and morals, but not in matters of history? Here you have something that covers both. To put it another way, if Jesus Christ's resurrection is not a matter of history, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you are all dead in your sins. You're going to hell. We all are going to hell. The, the reason why the resurrection is a matter of faith for us is because it happened historically. Just like the crucifixion and even the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If these things didn't happen historically, then we are whistling in the dark when it comes to what we believe. But they're matters of historical record. Third evidence. This is my favorite one. Because hypothetically, theoretically, if you had a human being who worked really hard and had extraordinary diligence in doing his research, he could, hypothetically speaking, come up with a product that was inerrant. Never seen it happen, but I suppose it could happen theoretically. But can someone, can a human being, predict the future inerrantly? This is something only God can do. Even if it were hypothetically possible for a human being to get all the history and science stuff right, there's no way that a human being is going to, unaided, that's the point, there's no way that he is going to be able to look down the corridors of time and predict with an erring detail events that will take place hundreds, if not even thousands of years before they actually do take place. So the Bible is prophetically accurate would be number three. As science looks at kind of things that we're dealing with today, history looks at things that were 
took place in the past. Prophecy looks at things that are yet future, or at least yet future at the time that they were originally written. A couple of illustrations. I'll start with my favorite one, all the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. You have Old Testament prophets predicting what city he would be born in, predicting that his mother would be a virgin, predicting that he would descend from David, but not through David's son, Jeconiah, but through the other, another son. Uh, you have prophecy after prophecy connected with his birth, connected with his ministry, connected with his crucifixion, and even connected with his resurrection in the Old Testament. Something like 300 of them that were fulfilled during the first advent of Christ. Fulfilled prophecy. Utterly, absolutely impossible. Unless you have God involved. A couple of specific illustrations. Isaiah chapter 45. And I love this one because of the context it fits within the book of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was writing to a group of people, the Israelites, right around the time of the Assyrian captivity, which was 722 B.C. Why did people go into captivity in Assyria? In a word, why? What were they guilty of? Idolatry. They were worshiping other gods. And so part of why Isaiah writes his prophecy is to call all of these people back to repentance and back to worshiping the one true God. In the middle of that whole section, you have even these polemics against idols, idolatry. You have, uh, uh, you have um, uh, Isaiah mocking people who build these gods. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. In contrast to that, we serve a God who doesn't have eyes, but he sees. He doesn't have ears, physical ears, but he hears. He doesn't have a physical mouth, but he speaks. And Isaiah constantly is pointing, quit worshiping false gods, go back to the true God. In fact, he's gonna give you, in Isaiah 40 through 48, three proofs that God is utterly incomparable. There is no one like him. Number one, he's the creator. You have tons of stuff in Isaiah 40 through 48 going right back to Genesis 1. Number two, he's the redeemer. Just like he brought Israel out of, out of Egypt, that Exodus event was a foretaste of the greater deliverance that was gonna come through the Messiah. You got all those servant songs right in the middle of, of this section. But number three, God is the sovereign Lord of history, including history that hasn't happened yet. And so what Isaiah does in Isaiah 45, and I would encourage you to study this passage in more detail, Isaiah tells you the name of the king who will allow the Israelites to return from the land of captivity, not the Assyrian captivity, not even the Babylonian captivity, which would conquer the Assyrians, but the Medo-Persian king who would allow the Israelites to return. And Isaiah just names the guy about 160 years before he's born. Cyrus. In fact, he is so clear and so explicit about it that the only way liberals can deal with it is to come up with two Isaiahs. A second one who wrote the last half of Isaiah later because that's the one that has the prophecy in it. Because 
After all, there's no way that a human being could predict that. Exactly. <laughs> That's the point. Only God can do this. And he does it inerrantly uh, 200 years before the fact. Amazing. One more, and this one I end on. I don't know how much time I have left. Am I doing okay? okay. You know, I, I was afraid that would go down if I stayed up there. Matthew 24, the humanly impossible prophecy. This is one that Jesus gave the last week of his life. In fact, a couple days before his crucifixion. He comes to the temple. Matthew 24, coming out from the temple, he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another until all be destroyed. An utterly impossible prophecy. Now why do I say that? I'd say that for a couple reasons. The building that Jesus was talking about was at the time that Jesus uttered those words had been being built for 50 years. It started being built at the command of Herod the not so great who the Jews did not like. And so he did this partly to ingratiate himself with the Jews. But they were building this temple over a period of about 82 or 83 years, between 20 B.C. and about 63 A.D. And don't think they were taking their time about it. There was over 100,000 workmen working full-time on that temple building. About 150 feet tall. You had, um, I mean, there's just a, a lot of material on all the amazing descriptions. There are a couple things I'll just highlight. You know, you had this great big building. You had... Uh, all the insides and the outsides of the building overlaid with gold. You even had solid gold spikes that were on top of it to keep the birds off the roof from defiling the temple, the way birds normally defile things. And you had everything with this temple. So obviously the Jews, and of course this, temple, this prophecy, by the way, was fulfilled when? 80, 70, 40 years later with the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem. So if you fast forward to that time, number one, the Jews didn't want the temple destroyed because that was their house of worship. But the Romans didn't want the temple destroyed. Why? Because the Romans love architecture. And the, the general in charge, a guy by the name of Titus, no relation to the Bible guy, uh, the Roman general in charge, Titus, gave explicit orders to his soldiers that they were, they, they were to secure the court but they were not to touch the temple on penalty of death. And you, you've heard accounts of how the temple was set up. You had the building itself. Of course, within the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, and then only the priest could go into the temple. Only, and only Jewish worshipers could approach the temple if they had a sacrifice they had to offer. There was a wall kind of around that, and then outside there was the the court that Jewish women could go into, and then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles, where Jesus carried out most of his ministry. And there were doorways 
leading into each of these gates that they've actually found signs archaeologically that says any Gentile who steps across this threshold will have himself to thank for his death that will inevitably follow. So no Gentile could go in, go in there. This was, this was the Jews' holy place. The Romans, that was their, they wanted to turn it, actually Titus wanted to turn it into a pantheon to the Roman gods. So nobody wanted to destroy, but there's another reason why this is an impossible prophecy. Josephus, who by the way was an eyewitness of the destruction of the temple, tells us how big the stones were that made up the temple building. They were 70 feet long. I forget whether which is height and which is width, but 10 feet, we'll just call it 10 feet tall, 15 feet wide. I don't know, I'm not a very good judge of distances, but I'm guessing maybe from me to that wall would be about 70 feet. What's that? Okay, so we got a lot of space here. A lot of length. Now, you know the way Romans would destroy cities, they get these great big, you know, um, yeah, battering ram. Thank you, I lost the word. And you could, but you could get a battering ram and you could beat against that thing and, for the rest of your life and all you're going to get are blisters. It's humanly impossible to destroy that building. But it happened. Just like Jesus said. If you want to read the account, you pick this up in Josephus. He actually records how it happened. Oh, uh, uh, just off of the Temple Mount, off of the gate of the uh, court of the Gentiles, there was, a, um, there was a fortress of Antonia that would house all the Roman soldiers. So all the Roman soldiers had gathered there the night before they were planning to secure the temple court. And this is when Titus gave his instructions about what the soldiers were to do and what they weren't to do. Well, a couple of the soldiers looked over into the temple court and saw that a fire had broken out. Not inside the temple itself, but in the courts immediately surrounding the temple. So Titus gave the order to his soldiers to go in there and put out the fire. So the Roman soldiers went into the court, and as soon as they passed that threshold that I told you, anyone who passes here has himself for his death that will inevitably follow, the Jews jumped on him. So this great big war breaks out outside the temple, but inside the Jewish courts. And from that moment on, pandemonium reigned. And Josephus tells us that at one point, and of course Titus was over there yelling, put out the fire, put out the fire, and nobody was even listening to him. And at one point, one soldier jumped on the back of another soldier, picked up a firebrand, and heaved it through a low golden window in the temple. And of course, all the walls in there were covered with tapestries, and they all caught on fire. And you, you read through Josephus, and you find out that, of course, at, at that time of the year was about the time of the Passover, so you had million, literally millions of Jews in Jerusalem at that time to observe the Passover. Slaughtered just like Jesus said. But he didn't just say the temple's going to be destroyed. What were the words that he used? Not one stone, 70 feet by 15 by 10 feet. Not one stone will be left upon another. Remember I told you that there was something about all those walls? What were they all overlaid with? Gold. What happens to gold when you burn it? It melts. And guess where all the gold went? 
into the cracks between those stones, where it then rehardened. Now, Romans love architecture, but if you can't save the architecture, there's something else that runs a close second. Their paychecks. The only way they could get at the gold was by getting all their slaves together and chiseling those rocks off of each other and remelting the gold. Not one stone will be left upon another. Now, this is where I want to bring this to a close. Because this is the so what of biblical inerrancy. We talk about the Bible being the word of God. We talk about the Bible even being the inerrant word of God. Why is that so important? In a word, because it's connected with the authority of Jesus Christ. He gave this prophecy to a nation that rejected him. They crucified him a few days later, thinking we're finally done with this guy. But Jesus shows that his authority extends even over the grave. And the book of Matthew ends with this statement, all authority has been given to me. Not just in Jerusalem, not even just over believers, but all authority in heaven and earth. When men and women set themselves against the word of God, they're going against the authority of the God of the universe, who's demonstrated it in every possible way. He not only made the claims for what we would call biblical inerrancy, but he demonstrated those claims over and over and over and over again in ways that anyone who approaches Scripture with a submitted mind can see the evidence. But those who don't, don't see the evidence not because it isn't there, but because they refuse to see it. Refuse to see it. And so we are here tonight at Valley Bible Church and a church that over 40 years has built its ministry on a firm, unyielding conviction that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. And my prayer is not only that you will recognize that there is solid, irrefutable evidence that builds that up, backs that up, but that this church would never join the ash heap of history of churches that once affirmed what we talked about tonight, but have turned their back on the word of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life transformation, the life transforming power of your word. Thank you that this word that we talked about tonight is, is able even to give us eternal life. As Paul said to Timothy, from a child you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. That we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which lives and abides forever. Thank you, Lord, that we are here as recipients of your salvation and your regeneration that has come through the scripture itself. So, Lord, help us to affirm it, help us to hold on to it, and more importantly, help us to submit to the authority of the one who gave us 
the inerrant Word of God. And I thank you so much for the privilege of being here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.